Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. This is Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today my guest is Ben Stein with Panbo.com. Ben is also a Gold Looper who is currently calling in from Charlevoix, Michigan, where they've been weathered in for a few days. But before we bring Ben officially into the conversation, I do want to take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral-level sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes & Associates, Dog River Marina, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. Let's go ahead and bring Ben Stein into the conversation. Ben, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Good morning. Let's start, if we could, by introducing you to our listeners who maybe don't know you yet. Tell us a little bit about your looping experience and about Panbo.com. Sure. So I uh, looped with my wife, Laura, and my two daughters, Molly and Madeline. Uh, When we left, they were nine and six. We left in uh, August of 2016 and returned to Chicago in October of 2017. Um, I have a background in electronics and uh, critical infrastructure for uh, financial services, actually. But uh, after we got back, I really wanted to keep boating and, and get more into the boating industry. And so I started working with Ben Ellison, who uh, has been publishing Panbo for about the last uh, 12 years, and in working with him, I uh, have uh, in just taking over as publisher of Panbo now, um, and plan to cover the marine electronics industry. So uh, when, when Kim approached me with the, the topic for today, it seemed a, a pretty good fit for what I've done and what I'm doing now. Definitely it is, and this topic was actually suggested by one of our listeners who wanted to learn more basically about communications with the outside world while you're looping. So we're going to talk a little bit about cellular coverage, a little bit about Internet service, um, and also how to use those services for your entertainment needs while you're on the loop. So let's start, if we can, Ben, with phone service. What has been your experiences with cell service on the loop? Um, How realistic is it to expect cell coverage along the way? Sure. So I think... Probably the first thing to start with is a little bit of uh, general orientation, which I think applies to almost everything on the loop, which is it is probably more about what you're comfortable with than what is right or wrong. So I know people who you know, done the entire loop uh, while we were doing it with a flip phone that had service about half the time, and they were perfectly happy with that. It worked for them, and there was nothing wrong with it. So, uh, you know, I... I think a lot of people in the preparation phase get a little bit hung up on the things they need. And the reality is that the list of things they need is pretty short. The list of things they need to be comfortable might be longer. Uh, and, you know, most of what we're going to talk about today probably falls into that category. But that said, what we found for cellular coverage was that we had, we think, looking back on it, only two nights on the loop when we did not have reliable cell phone connectivity. Um, We left with a mix of AT&T and T-Mobile cell service. For sure, the T-Mobile phones had many, many more than two nights without coverage. But between AT&T and Verizon, what we saw ourselves and what we've heard from other loopers, 
uh, just about the entirety of the loop is covered uh, well enough to at least you know get a phone call out, get a text message out to your family that, hey, I'm here, everything's great. Um, and the vast, vast majority of the time, plenty of service to also surf the internet and do anything else that you might normally do on your phone. Uh, for us, with AT&T, it really did prove to basically be a non-issue. That's definitely good to know. And one of the suggestions that I just kind of heard between the lines there is that you had two service providers. And I've heard that as a suggestion before, that if it's very critical to you to have cellular service most of the time that perhaps having two different providers is helpful. Did you find any, anywhere along the way where the T-Mobile phones had coverage where AT&T did not? Uh, we didn't. I don't think I can think of a single time when T-Mobile had coverage and AT&T did not, but certainly there were quite a few times when we would see better performance from T-Mobile than AT&T. Uh, that particularly can be the case actually in, in larger metropolitan areas where frequently the AT&T network is quite congested and the T-Mobile network isn't. But uh, to circle back to your point about two carriers, I absolutely agree. Um, if it is critical to you, you know, two carriers is the, the surest way to ensure that you will have service, uh, whether it's because of congestion, a network outage, or just variations in the carrier's coverages. And, you know, I would say that if, if ultimate reliability is your priority, uh, between team, excuse me, between AT&T and Verizon, you're likely to be extraordinarily well covered. Though in major metros, those are also the two carriers who typically see the most uh, saturation problems and, and oversubscription problems. Okay, and I don't know if you'll be able to answer this next question, um, but in the places where you mentioned, you know, two nights where you didn't have coverage. Do you happen to know whether Verizon would have covered those areas you were in? I'm sure they were fairly remote areas, so there may not have been other loopers around with a Verizon service that could answer that question. I, I don't know with certainty. Anecdotally, my suspicion is that Verizon would have covered it. So one mm -hmm. of the spots was on the 10-tom. Uh, it just happened to be a, a particularly remote anchorage. Uh, we weren't actually all that far from civilization, as it were. Um, but just where we were happened to, to not have any AT&T coverage or T-Mobile coverage. I, uh, from what I heard from other people, I suspect that Verizon probably had a sliver of coverage there. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, by and large, uh, what I've observed is that the coverage gaps between Verizon and AT&T tend not to overlap in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And it, it, at this point, with as well-developed as really all the cellular networks are, um, the holes are pretty few and far between. Right. Now, I know that you just spent some time in some of the more remote areas of Canada as well, and that's one of the places that anecdotally I hear from loopers, they have some struggles with cell service. So how did you find that to be while you were in Canada? Um, so while we were in Canada, there are a few areas that we pulled into. I think probably the, the most widely noted is Bay Finn, uh, which is a, a fjord and very sheer cliff walls and seems to be a pretty good natural uh, cell phone blocking zone. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did see a little bit of slim coverage getting in there. Um, we always we knew that if we hopped in the dinghy and went you know, two or three miles uh, to the west, we would uh, have very sure coverage. We had enough coverage that night to get text messages in and out and sort of random little bursts of email and things like that coming through. But um, definitely 
there are areas in Canada that can be a little bit spotty on cell coverage. Um, we do also have, on our boat, we have a couple of uh, data devices that are on the cellular networks with antennas high on the boat, and those seem to be able to punch through even in the, the, the more of the, the dead zones uh, in Canada. Okay, well, good. Your point that you opened with was very well taken, that there are things that perhaps you need and some things that you would like to have for your own cover, cu comfort. So one thing that some blue water cruisers use frequently would be a satellite phone as opposed to cell service to make sure that they can get those calls out if needed. Needing that for the loop is maybe different um, than the needs for somebody who's out in the middle of an ocean. But tell us a little bit about a sat phone. Is that something that you saw a lot of loopers out there with or something that you feel people might want to take with them? So I would say that a sat phone falls, and, and I'm usually guilty of it, uh, but falls clearly into the category of overkill, even by my relatively uh, overdone standards. I think uh, a mm -hmm. sat phone is probably a lot more than you need. I mean, the only time, I should have mentioned in terms of cell phone coverage, the only other time that we really didn't have coverage was crossing the Gulf. Uh, we did a daylight mm -hmm. crossing. Uh, we ran straight offshore, and we actually ran Carabelle down to uh, St. Petersburg area. And so for most of that, we did not have coverage. Um, we would have had coverage with a sat phone. Uh, we would have had coverage with a satellite messaging device. And I would say mm -hmm. if you want the comfort of knowing that you can get in touch if you have to and that somebody can get in touch with you if they have to, I would much more look towards uh, a Garmin spot or um, any of these. There's a, a small handful of satellite messaging devices um, that allow both tracking of the boat and the ability to exchange SMS uh, short message text style uh, messages. For the loop, that's, uh, I think, as much or more than you will need. Uh, we did not have a salary messenger um, during our time, and, and I never really felt uh, a strong desire to have one. With, with cellular, we were fine. Um, from a summoning the cavalry if something went wrong perspective, uh, nothing beats an EPIRB. Um, and uh, it, interestingly, also on the loop, the places that you won't have cell coverage, which are crossing the Gulf, and if you cross, uh, the Great Lakes, um, mid-lake, you're likely to not have coverage. We found that we have, the Coast Guard has excellent VHF coverage of all of those areas. Uh, there was there were some dogfighting exercises above us on the Gulf that caused us a little bit of concern, and I called the Coast Guard on 16, and they answered immediately with, with no issues. So, um, you know, that was a nice reminder that even though our cell phones weren't working, we were still well within the range of, of help if we needed it. Right. Very good to know. Let's shift the conversation a little bit to Wi-Fi. Um, we know a lot of marinas advertise that they do have Wi-Fi, but the usability of that Wi-Fi can certainly vary greatly. So what were your findings regarding marina Wi-Fi while you were out there? So my findings regarding marina Wi-Fi are a little bit incomplete because my early findings were bad enough I gave up. Um, and I stopped connecting to marina Wi-Fi for the most part. One finding that I did have is that there's a company out there called OnSpot Wi-Fi that is, uh, all they do is run marina Wi-Fi and they do an excellent job. And so when you check into a marina who's contracted with OnSpot, they'll hand you a little brochure that says our Wi-Fi is provided by OnSpot Wi-Fi. And that was a hint that, okay, it's gonna work here. 
most other places, I would say my success rate was below 50% and probably pretty well below 50% in terms of getting a usable connection. We traveled with multiple cellular hotspots um, that provided us bandwidth via LTE cellular networks. And uh, I think outside of the on-spot Wi-Fi provided uh, marinas, uh, I could probably count on one hand the number of marinas that had uh, Wi-Fi faster than our cellular connections. Um, the other thing I would say is pay attention to the comments in Active Captain as you check out marinas. Um, one of the most com commonly commented on things in comments, boy, that's a lot of comments, uh, is the <laughs> quality of the Wi-Fi at the marina. And um, at this point, I don't actually feel like the really bad connect connectivity marinas get that much mention of that because it's almost the expectation. But the marinas with good Wi-Fi, frequently you will see gobs and gobs of comments about how great it was and you know, people who could catch up on their blogs and catch up on all of the things they haven't been able to do because they haven't been able to get reliable Wi-Fi. Okay. So probably a good tip not to expect that the marina will have workable Wi-Fi. So what types of other solutions can you recommend for perhaps light use, um, you know, email, checking social media, things like that? Yep. So one, one point I should have made in the marina uh, question is it is frequently the case that while the Wi-Fi on the dock will be terrible, if there's a boater's lounge or, some, or even a laundry room frequently, uh, it's not at all unusual that the Wi-Fi there is, is much more usable. And so if you have a specific need, very frequently you walk up to the office or to the boater's lounge, um, you can get good enough connectivity to get what you need done. Um, the, the problem for most marinas isn't actually getting a, a good enough Internet connection. It's distributing that among their docks. Um, but in terms of other options that are out there, if it's really light use and casual use, um, it's likely that utilizing a uh, tethering option from your carrier where your cell phone can, uh, where your smartphone can act as a Wi-Fi hotspot, um, is, there's a strong chance that will be good enough to um, get some emails out, you know, perhaps check social media, et cetera. Uh, that's likely not a solution if your hope is to stream um, you know, many seasons of Netflix shows and the, and the like. So, um, but for casual use, your your phone is a strong possibility, and if not your phone, getting a, um, a mobile hotspot from your carrier, sometimes called a MiFi or, or something like that, uh, is certainly uh, quite viable as well. Mm -hmm. Now, for people who are heavy users of streaming video or, you know, updating different software that they may have on their laptop, things like that, or their, their navigation software, um, is there a solution that you can recommend for them, you know, that would work better? Is a MiFi a viable solution for something like that? Um, I would say that a MiFi is very much a your mileage may vary solution. Um, what I have found has worked very well for us is that we went with a um, a cellular internet service. It's actually a, a, a reseller of AT&T service, a company called 4G Antenna Solutions. And their real target market is actually um, rural residents who are not in range of DSL and cable offerings. And so they're offering home-style internet via cellular um, with much higher caps 
than you will typically see from uh, the carriers directly. We uh, were able to use our internet without really any regard for um, conservation of bandwidth and you know where most carriers institute throttling of either 16 or 22 gigs a month. Um, they advertise that they won't start throttling until 50. We very rarely saw throttling uh, even in months when we use 250 or 300 gigabytes of um, data transfer. So there are um, a number of uh, companies like that out there. Most of them focused on rural residents. Some of them also focused on RV and occasionally a little bit of a awareness that voters might use it too. But we definitely represent the smallest market. So typically end up finding something from uh, a company really aimed a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us roughly what the cost for something like that might be? Oh, sure, sure. I think it's about $80 a month for that connection. Mm-hmm. Which is really not bad, especially considering what the cell service can run if you are on one of those higher data limits. That's right. That's absolutely right. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and play a message from one of our sponsors. When I come back, um, we want to shift to some of the onboard options for infrastructure because it seems like those discussions pop up pretty regularly in our forum, and I believe there was a thread about that uh, this week. And you know, some of sometimes it's solutions, really, as you mentioned, kind of designed for RVs, but boats are a little bit different. So when we come back, we'll talk about some of the options there. We'll be back in a moment. The new MJM-50Z is the most technologically advanced production motor yacht available, first worldwide to incorporate a Seakeeper gyro stabilizer as standard equipment to virtually eliminate roll in ways underway or at anchor, and in June 2015, the first to include fully opening power windshields for control of fresh airflow. MJMs are unique in the industry, built of environmentally clean, stronger and lighter epoxy compounds composites in the USA. Owner benefits are significant. A smaller carbon footprint with 50 to 100 percent better fuel efficiency. A top speed with optional triple IPS 600s of 40 knots and crews of 35 knots. A more responsive, enjoyable driving experience and greater safety offshore. For more information, visit them on the web at www.mjmyachts.com. We're back on Great Loop Radio. Our guest today is Ben Stein from Panbo.com, and we are talking about cell service, Wi-Fi, and uh, communication issues really aboard boat specific to communicating with the outside world. Um, ben, we wanted to shift the conversation now to some of the options for onboard infrastructure. So tell us about some of the equipment that you can add to a boat that are going to help you as you're trying to keep in, in contact with the outside world and stream video and things like that. So I think probably one of the, the most important things, if you have a more complex set of equipment on the boat, so smart TVs and you know these days many of your plotters, um, your phones, your tablets, et cetera, uh, will want to connect to a network. What, what I've done and what's worked very well for us is we have an onboard network, um, just like we would at home. Uh, I'm using uh, a, a mix of... Um, home built, excuse me, products built for the home and marine specific products in order to do that. But all of the devices on my boat connect to my boat's network. And I'm then able to connect the boat's network to uh, Wi-Fi at a marina if 
that's a viable option, or to um, cellular via one of the, the devices we talked about a little bit earlier um, in order to get connectivity. The, the benefit there is that once the boat's connected, everything that's on the boat uh, it's, it's automatically connected. I don't have to reconfigure the TV to connect to the Marina Wi-Fi and then my laptop to connect to the Marina Wi-Fi and then my tablet, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So what type of, what are the specific types of equipment that you used to put together that onboard network? So I'm using, um, and, and uh, a little plug for Panbo, if you check out www.panbo.com, I have an article there about um, the equipment that we used. Um, right now on the boat, I'm testing a number of pieces of equipment, but um, one of the ones that I'm using is from a company called Wave Wi-Fi. Wave is a company that, spe- that specializes in um, marine internet and connectivity. Uh, there's a, a handful of those companies, uh, Aegean, um, and then most of the um, General marine electronics vendors also make them. So Shakespeare has a product, Glomex has a product, Weingart has a product, all of which are designed to um, switch between a 4G connection and off-board Wi-Fi while providing an on-boat network um, that you can connect all of your equipment to. Okay. So... um how how does that work? I mean, you obviously you have a router that kind of connects everything together. Is that the part of the, the component that is marine specific, or is that something that you said some of it was the types of things you would use in your home? Sure. So on our boat, we're actually using a a product made for the home. Um, there are in each of each piece of this uh, equipment, there's options that are marine specific, and there are options that are made for the home. Um, the marine-specific tend to be simpler user interfaces and really designed around the way that boaters are going to use them and kind of eliminating the clutter and the distraction of all of the other options that are unlikely to be used uh, on a boat. So um, for me, for the, the way that we use our boat, I went ahead and uh, live with and, in fact, utilize the complexity that, that's offered. But for many people, I would strongly recommend um, something from a company like Wave or you know, any of the others that I've mentioned um, that is aimed at the marine market. Um, and indeed, you, know, you asked about what that equipment is. There's typically a router that you connect to, um, and then frequently there's another router that's actually facing the outside world that is making the decisions about how you get your connectivity. Um, but the, the central ingredient there is a router, uh, a Wi-Fi hotspot within the boat for all of your wireless devices to connect to, and then a way to connect out to the outside world. Okay. So not really that different than what you would have at home, but some of that is, is specific to boating. Um, yeah. The big difference between what you have at home and what you have on the boat is that at home, you make a decision about whether you have a cable modem or DSL or whatever you've got, and you sort of stick to it. The difference on the boat is that you're reconnecting to, in a lot of cases, a different network on a near daily basis. And so that that difference means that some of the the ways that the home-based products are meant to be used uh, don't work as well on the boat. Okay, good to know. How about signal amplifiers? Is that helpful along the loop? Um, I would say that's universally helpful, but as we sort of rank these things in terms of the the likelihood of need, I would put a signal amplifier 
pretty low. Uh, when I referenced that we did not have coverage for only a couple of nights during the loop, that was without a signal amplifier on the boat. Um, uh, we did have some of the um, data antennas relatively high on the boat, which is in essence what a signal amplifier gets you is higher off the water uh, and, and a higher power uh, radio. But we, you know, those two nights without coverage were just using the internal antennas in our phones. So, um, you know, it's likely that even those two nights we could have eliminated with a signal amplifier, but we were gone 400 and something nights and two of them we didn't have coverage. That certainly didn't, wouldn't rise to the point of needing to do something different in my mind. No, in my world, those two nights would have been nice, peaceful nights. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes it's nice to be disconnected for a little bit. <laughs> yep. Um, another, you know, piece of equipment you could have for your boat perhaps is a satellite dish. And, and a few years back, that was probably the most common way, I would say, for boaters who really wanted to make sure that they had TV to do that. Are you still seeing a need for that out there? Are, you, are many loopers still using that option for TV, or have most gone to streaming options? So... Satellite is still the most reliable, and once it's installed, kind of the simplest way to get TV. You know, the mm -hmm. you're going to receive TV as long as you're not in a covered slip or something that otherwise would interfere with the satellite's ability to see the sky. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't have to consider whether or not you have internet connectivity, etc. Um, we during the loop had a dish. Um, during the loop, our dish had an issue and stopped working and I would say without much issue at all we switched to streaming um, mm -hmm. so both definitely can work um, our boat is perhaps not a perfect indication because uh, it's pretty high priority for me to have working internet and so we had taken a lot of steps in order to make sure we basically always did um, the the one maybe disappointment maybe feature getting back to that unplugging thing is mm -hmm. on the nights when you don't have connectivity via cell, if you're also getting your TV via the internet, you're also not going to have TV. Maybe that's a right. nice invitation to read the book. Maybe that's a source of frustration. You know. right. um, sort of depends on, on your own personal preferences. But, you know, the beauty of the satellite dish is you turn it on and it works. Um, there's not any, you know, worrying about whether or not the internet connection is connected whether you've got a strong enough signal etc um it, it just works um you know we we had a dvr as well so we were able to record programs and all of that worked you know basically like it would at home the downside is if you're a direct tv subscriber um the vast majority of the dishes out there are only capable of receiving standard definition television hd requires a, a dish that runs about ten thousand dollars um, and uh, it's even harder to stomach that expense. Um, and then if I were looking at buying new, one of the things that I would be aware of is that AT&T, who now owns DirecTV, has publicly said that by 2020, they hope to move all of their satellite subscribers to streaming products. So mm -hmm. you might not get the longest life out of that product if they make the date. Um, all right. We are almost out of time, but anything, Ben, that we haven't touched on that you think is important for loopers to know? No, I would probably, I think we've, we've touched on a fair amount, but I would just circle back to that concept that I started with, which is um, you will see boats ranging from a flip phone and, you know, paper charts to probably our boat with 
a silly number of antennas sticking out of the top of it, etc. But, you know, I, I, there's no right answer. It's really what you need. And, you know, if you look at your phone once a day when you're at home, uh, I would not make myself crazy trying to figure out, you know, the best connectivity, etc. And on the other hand, if you're hoping to work while you're on the loop or, you know, used to a very high level of connectivity, um, definitely there are lots of options out there and, and you can find something that will work for you. Right. And, uh, Ben, people can hear more from you from your writing on panbo.com? Yes, absolutely. And is there a feature there that they, they can subscribe to so that they know when you have added new content to it? Yes. Yeah, there's a feature to, to subscribe there on the, the left side of the site. And then the other thing is there is an article titled, titled uh, Marine Internet, a Connected Year on the Water, which is really a, a write-up of what we did and what we used during our loop um, and probably a, a pretty good starting spot. Right. Excellent. Ben, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time and you sharing all of your knowledge with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Kim. Um, and for our listeners, a quick note that registration is now open for our next Looper Lifestyle Seminar, which is going to be in Annapolis, Maryland You can in November 16th and 17th. You can find that under events on the greatloop.org website. And Ben Stein will be joining us again at the Fall Rendezvous. He was one of our top speakers at the Spring Rendezvous, and he will be joining us again to discuss marine electronics at the Fall Rendezvous. So we hope to see a lot of you at those upcoming events. We'll be back next week with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising.